Welcome to episode 104 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, it's all about the restarts, who's good, who's bad, and even who's improving so far this year. Plus, our huge Coke 600 preview, where we'll start by asking if this is the most important race of the year. Intriguing, yes, I know. But first, as always, David, well, it's still new, but we are starting out our episode with a historical deep dive. This week into the 1994 Coke 600, which just happened to be the first victory for a young driver named David, I'll let you go. Uh, that would be Jeff Gordon. Jeff friggin' Gordon, who would turn into the legend himself, four-time champion, 90-plus wins, thorn in my side, and it all starts with this race, David. <laughs> David, Jeff Gordon was on the pole that day in 1994 for the Coke 600, but he would only lead the first lap. He was passed right away by Jeff Bodine. Uh, sure, Gordon hung around for sure that day, but it was my guy. It was my guy, David. Rusty Wallace, who dominated the night. This was in the middle of Rusty's, you know, 18 wins in two years. Uh, and he dominated the 600 that night, led 187 of the 400 laps. Jeff Bodine led more than 100. But David, this came down to the end with a 77 lap green flag run late in the race. And I think it was 19 laps to go. Jeff, everyone's pitting for fuel because it's, you know, a long fuel run. Everyone's taking four tires. Well, Jeff Gordon in the 24, this young kid in the 24 car takes two tires and the rest, David, is history. Gordon came out with a lead, drove to victory, and little did we know what this was the beginning of for both he and Ray Evernham. And again, what makes this so significant is how surprising the call was back then, David, for two tires. Yes, this was Jeff Gordon's first win, Ray Evernham's, all that stuff. But the call for two tires was so kind of out there still. In 1994, that even after the race, they interviewed Rusty and he said, quote, we never dreamed he'd do that. We were racing the seven car. They weren't even thinking about the 24 car. Ray Evernham, they he, they got applauded for the guesswork, you know, taking a guess on two tires. And he said, it wasn't a guess. They didn't leave me any choice. We couldn't beat them one way. So we had to beat them another. And David, that was the beginning of my love-hate relationship with Jeff Gordon. Mostly hate. But <laughs> from a fandom perspective, it all started then. Jeff Gordon finishes first. Rusty Wallace finishes second. And man, we'd see that a few more times in my lifetime. It is wild. I let you pick this segment. I did not realize that you were going to be picking at a harsh childhood memory. <laughs> uh, uh, either way, it's, it is sort of weird that even now, Crew chiefs are second guessed for two tire calls on racetracks with minimal tire wear. And we might actually be going into a race this weekend at Charlotte Motor Speedway where those principles will apply and the decision may be equally as shocking. Uh, I, I don't, you know, you, you can say that Ray Everton brought, uh, different strategic plays into the sport, uh, certainly popularizing the two tire calls, uh, in some respects, but it, has it progressed in the minds of observers? I don't know. It, I, it, it isn't you for, for you and me. It's not, 
uh, and our listeners are, are, are certainly uh, nodding along, saying that they're not surprised when that kind of call succeeds. <laughs> but it still seems to be kind of that way. Like, whoa, they took two and it worked. I can't believe it. Uh, and yeah, that their their story together. It began before this in the Bush series, but essentially it jumped up a few notches with this particular win. And I, I do want to talk about Jeff Gordon because he is in my mind becoming something of an underrated character. Hmm. Um, maybe they, uh, folks like to hang a lot of his success, uh, with Ray Evernham as the reason for his success, or they point to what Jimmy Johnson was quickly able to do once he got a Hendrick ride. But there is a certainly selective, somewhat revisionist history regarding not only his rookie season, but this season, his sophomore campaign, 1994 in the Cup Series. He only won two races in those two years. It was this one and the Brickyard 400. Uh, sorry to bring that back up for you. <sighs> big wins on big stages, <laughs> yes. right? And that's that's the memory. But his production ratings in those years – Though they were really good for 21 and 22-year-olds on average, they were pedestrian compared to other drivers in those years. His rookie season peer was a 1.5. His second season peer, in which he won those races, uh, the, the car was stronger, the team was stronger, the driver, largely the same guy, maybe a little bit worse, if anything, a 1.452 peer. Uh, he crashed out of five different races in 1994. He was really trying to press the issue. Ray Evernham talked about that uh, in a few different interviews. Um, and that was more than his 1993 total. In 93, he suffered four engine failures and four DNFs related to handling. So that was kind of a moment in time. We've talked about it before. The, these, these races in the past where you see these mechanical failures for big teams, they didn't even have their stuff sorted back then. But after 94, it was the 95 season, the strides of the team and the driver finally coalesced and uh, resulted in a 4.371 peer on the heels of a seven win season. That was actually the first of four straight years of a 4.0 peer or higher. You know, a kind of a, a, a ho-hum first two years, a lot of highlights for certain, but pedestrian when compared to other drivers might remind you of the current driver of the 24 car uh, who ranked second in peer this year, William Byron, maybe at a lesser scale, smaller scale, but the growth trajectory is there. Um, so I found that uh, to be interesting when you selected this as your, uh, your deep dive this week. But it is interesting only because uh, I, I would always often go back and point to those first two years for Jeff Gordon and remind people that he did not win in his rookie year, right? There was that stretch from, I think it was 99 to 2006, where rookies won every year. It was it was an expectation. If you were a rookie, you can win, you should win because of X, Y, and Z. And it was like, no, this should be hard for rookies. I think the weird stretch is them being able to win. And now we see it where it is once again. Again, tough. And so when we see drivers like William Byron coming in and not winning at first and getting all this judgment early on, it seems crazy to me because it shouldn't be that way. And I think that the Gordon approach, or at least the Gordon trajectory is far more common than that early 2000s. Again, I think it started with Tony Stewart. Uh, 
you know, or it almost became common for rookies to win. That that was not normal to me. The the Jeff Gordon approach was far more normal. Yeah, 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 yeah. It popularized the Tony Stewart, and then uh I'm gonna get the order wrong, but Casey Kane was there, Denny Hamlin, yep. Carl Edwards, Jimmy Johnson, Ryan Newman, yeah, you know, yeah. all that. So they all won. That, yeah, and th- and they were they were getting top tier rides very very early. Not that Jeff Gordon didn't, and not that William Byron didn't, but it's not the same for everyone. And you're hitting upon race teams. Uh, at least in Denny Hamlin's case, Joe Gibbs Racing was already a juggernaut. Uh, Tony Stewart joined JGR. They were very nearly a title contender, mm-hmm. uh, and he came in at the right moment. So timing certainly matters as well. Lest we forget, Jeff Gordon was the first champion for Hendrick Motorsports, so he's sort of the the pioneer in that respect. I want to ask you this. Uh, because Ray Evernham gets just a lot of love and it, it's almost to a point where he is pinpointed as the reason for so much of Jeff Gordon's early success and to an extent that that is, that is true. But Gordon, I do think he has become somewhat underrated in hindsight and I don't believe that that is fair. So, uh, Gordon and Evernham together won 47 races. Without Ray Evernham, Jeff Gordon won 46 races and a fourth championship. Uh, won races with four different crew chiefs, Brian Weitzel, Robbie Loomis, Steve Letart, Alan Gustafson. Uh, Gustafson's still carving out his own legacy. The other three, I would argue, not Hall of Fame caliber. But Gordon even late in his career, his final two seasons, you know that he was in the championship for in his final full season, but in terms of surplus passing value, this was the heat seeker that Gordon was even late into his career. 344 positions created beyond Ooh. statistical expectation. He does not get near enough credit for not only his, his own almost imitable brand of aggression, but the way in which he deployed aggressiveness efficiently, especially in traffic, was pretty remarkable. And looking back at some of these races, and I watched parts of this 94 race earlier today, it it was just, it was all there. You could see him searching and plotting and making those passes. And by the time he was winning championships, it was clockwork. He was a surgeon. Um, and not enough respect goes into Jeff Gordon, the driver, um, certainly benefit from having a good crew chief and a good team, but boy, he was, uh, he was pretty fantastic as much as it pains you to maybe. Admit. Oh yeah. Well, look, I, I can give respect where it's due. And it's funny you say he's under, you know, maybe becoming underrated to me. The more time that goes by, the better Jeff Gordon gets in my head. You think so? Oh okay. yeah. Uh, okay. Only because like 93 wins. Think about that. Just think about everything Jimmy Johnson did, how good he was. And then he was one of the greatest. The seven championships puttered out, you know, at the end, it kind of went away, you know, right? And it stopped at 84. You know, it was just for so long. It was like, oh, he's passed Jeff in, uh, in championships, going to blow by him in wins. 93 is a huge effing number, man. Kyle Bush. I mean, we thought about that for a long time. He goes nearly winless last year, you know, put up 93 wins. Can you do that? Can you put up 93 victories? Come on. And so the, the longer it goes, the more and bigger that number seems to me. 
which just seems crazy to see, to realize what we did. And then, and then the documentaries come out and you, you just start thinking back to how, how dominant he was, Jeff Gordon, you know, in that late 90s stretch. And it's just, uh, yeah, to me, the, the, the more time passes, the better Jeff Gordon gets. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. And I hope that that's the case. And certainly even just kind of gleaning some of these late career stats and, and there's, there will be a way to look at the peak of his career and understand statistically what else he was able to do besides produce results. Um, but that appreciation, I think it, it should be there. And this race was the start of. All of that. So, uh, yep. pretty good pick to start us off tonight. All right. All right. Yeah. It started our historical deep dive into the 1994 Coke 600. Let's get the episode started, David. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fast forwarding to 2021, David, something we always like to talk about on positive regression, something that I think we've helped uh, kind of bring a little more mainstream into the garage in terms of restarts and what to look at. Uh, David, I give full credit to you. I mean, in terms of who's a good restart or what to look at, what constitutes a good restart, all that stuff. So we're going to do the 2021 edition, at least so far into the season. Let's start with that, David. So far this season, who is good? Who is a good restarter? And, and what are you measuring that by? Oh, oh, there's so many answers to that question. <laughs> there, there are multiple ways to identify good restarters, and it goes beyond simply tallying the positions gained uh, or looking up at the retention rankings on motorsports analytics because there are multiple retention rankings. So uh, let's turn to Brad Keselowski here. Uh, he is the driver with the biggest retention rate on choose rule restarts this season. And those restarts omit Daytona, Talladega, uh, the Bristol dirt race and the road courses. It's a 76.92% retention rate that tops the series, but the net gain is even more impressive. Hmm. He is at plus 32 for a net. The next best net gain Belongs to Kyle Bush and it is plus five. Wow, that's a huge difference. Probably not a shock that he's a much better producer in races containing a late restart than he is in races that end with long green flag runs. Uh, Kaslowski has a peer over three in races with a late restart compared to just one for races without. Uh, and I mentioned those splits. 
uh, for a reason. I think this is, these restarts are particularly telling towards results and how drivers work through different race ending situations. But Kyle Larson, there is a dynamic here that sort of proves the importance of analysis when discussing statistics. Because mm-hmm. if I just hung the numbers on a website, a lot of folks would be confused by it. His split is similar to Keselowski. Uh, the, the, the split similar to what Keselowski has skews towards races without late restarts. He's nearly at a five peer for those races and holds a negative 0.296 peer in races containing late race restarts. Well, so, now, so the, the longer it goes green at the end, the better Kyle Larson is faring. Is that safe? Correct. Okay. Yes. Good assumption. Well, it, it, uh-huh. and, it, and, and that seems as if he isn't clutch or something or that he's not a good restarter. Um, but we can at least quantify whether he's a good restarter because he ranks third in retention on choose rule restarts. He's fine. I mean, he, he's, he's terrific. There isn't an inherent problem with his restarts, but when these races reset, Towards the end, it, it bunches up the field. It provides opportunity for others to overtake him for position while simultaneously eliminating what was pretty much a surefire opportunity at the, at the win or at least a good finish. And we've talked about this before. Who does it remind you of? It, it reminds you of Martin Truex, right? Peak Martin Truex. The, the last few years, one of the best restarters in the series. There was a stretch when his best results came whenever there was not a late caution to thwart what was the most likely ending. And in races that didn't have many restarts at all, just had a low caution volume. Well, and well, this maybe, is now, maybe this is too simple, but you know, I think Larson and his speed this year, Truex when he was classically fast, you know, back in a few years ago, the 78 car speed, if you will. But I guess if you have a restart, you're neutering their biggest strength, right? Is that a fair thing, way to put it? You know what I mean? The, yeah. Yes. I mean, if your lights out speed and all of a sudden you have a restart, you've just cut <clears throat> right off the speed and the biggest strength you had. Yeah, it's gone. I mean, all that, all that advantage, that big lead that's probably seconds from the car behind you, it's gone. And that's the air that Larson is in right now. Um, it's not that he's battery starts. It's just that his results come when there isn't anything there to wipe away what is the most likely outcome. And last driver I want to point to, a positive regression favorite, I'll say, Matt DiBenedetto, seventh overall in retention, uh, first in retention from the preferred groove and is the polar opposite of Larson. His peer in races with late restarts leads the series. His peer in races without a late restart ranks dead last. Uh, that is, without a shadow of a doubt, one of my favorite statistical oddities going right now. That is odd. Let me ask you a bigger picture question in terms of and let me I'm trying to wrap my head around the right question here into what's better I get positions gained or being good at retention if you will you know what I mean is keeping your spot a better uh, a better metric to look at if you want to look at, in terms of success rather than people who can gain on a restart is it more important to just keep your spot sometimes 
Well, I think it's a two-step process. The first thing that you want to do is retain the position because that mitigates the potential for a loss. If you're able to successfully do that, then if you have the proper mental wherewithal to understand what's happening, you can go for the gain. Uh, and that's what Kurt Bush spoke to when I talked to him about this very subject. It was, yeah, you, you have a plan before you go into turn one. You know what you need to do. And when that thing succeeds, at that point, you can shift into trying to do something else. Uh, he, he equated that to an audible in, in football. Um, just understanding what is happening around you and making a last minute adjustment. But it all starts with the first thing. And just if you were, if you were actually mapping out what a textbook restart is, the goal is to simply keep your running position from there. That's where everything grows out. But if you do not keep that original running position, then you can forget about a game because these, next few laps are just going to be horrid. All right, good. I just wanted to, I wondered your thoughts on that. Uh, David, not only do you break down restarts, but you've gone the next step and broken down even beyond into the choose rule, right? Who's making the best decisions choose rule wise to put themselves in a better position possibly to either retain or gain on a restart. So who's made the best use of the choose rule and how do you explain that? Well, that's a good uh, question. I- ironically, if we were to look at the charts uh, for best all-around choose rule restarters, it would go Keselowski, Ryan Blaney, Kyle Larson. And if we were to look at the drivers who had the greatest percentage of preferred groove restarts, it goes Keselowski, Ryan Blaney, Kyle Larson. Uh <laughs> Brad Keselowski is tops. He has had 62% of his restarts have originated from the statistically preferred groove. Uh, Ryan Blaney is at 57%. Kyle Larson is at 58%. And that has been key in their success. Pre-choose rule, maybe the, the 2018 season, I want to say, Kevin Harvick had a disproportionate amount of preferred groove restarts compared to the number that he had from the non-preferred groove. The reason for that is he was the leader a lot and chose correctly. Well, in this case, you have the opportunity to choose preferred or non-preferred wherever you are in the running order. And these three guys have not only just pragmatically selected the most likely spot where they can retain they have had the most success with it. So it's been a driver in that success. Uh, there's one, Ricky Stenhouse, 59% of his restarts from choose rule tracks have taken place from the preferred groove. Uh, the problem is he hasn't restarted very well. He has a net loss of seven positions. So the, the gain that you would expect from a preferred groove restart, it isn't there, not nearly as prolific as what we would expect, but the decision making is. So that's a start that he's he's identifying where he wants to start from. He just has to clean up what he's actually doing in regards to the execution. Interesting. All right, we've talked about who's good. Uh, the most the, the most improved award after uh, what fourteen races so far. <laughs> who is who is shining compared to their twenty twenty numbers? Yeah, it's probably a bit of a small sample size, but there are a few. Uh, Ryan Priest has moved from a forty four percent 
position defender to 53%. That's pretty significant in that he doesn't get many shakes inside the top 14. That's how I measure restarts. Um, but now the majority of the time he's keeping his spot and that's a big change. Uh, he has actually driven up his open market value, uh, which an update will occurred this week on motorsportsanalytics.com. He has gone from a six-figure driver to a seven-figure driver thanks to a litany of improvement, this being one of them. My man, Connecticut Um, kid. Eric Almirola from 57% retention to 75% retention. This has been, objectively, a bad season for Eric Almirola. This, though, is the one bright spot. Uh, I mean, it, we we have talked about Almirola in the past. Some of the things that he needed to clean up and this team needed to clean up was restarts. He has done that. He is the best restarter at Stuart Haas Racing. Uh, when he gets a shot in the top 14, he's doing fairly well. It's the decision-making, the crashing, everything else that comes after that that has sort of clouded what he has done well. But here it is, plain as day, he he has improved. We'll see if that sustains because that is a, a fairly high number. And yeah, that, no, that was my first thought though. I mean, yeah. it, I mean, as good as that sounds, it's almost like another twist of the knife because it's probably the least he's been in the top fourteen on a restart in, in, in you know what four years. You know what I mean? Like the, the in terms of the opportunities to uh, to excel and use this newfound skill, he's probably had fewer opportunities than than before. It's just having a crappy year to be up there. Yeah, and, and and that's just that's just kind of a you know a, a tough tough kick in the chest right there. Yep. But what but when you have it, you have to make the most of it, right? And so we we can at least credit him for doing that. And one last improved restarter I want to point out: Denny Hamlin has improved from a sixty five percent retention rate to a seventy one, uh, and he is netting out uh, four spots. Uh, from across all restarts. That is small as I say it, but to understand how frequently he has been near or at the front of the field, that small increase means a lot. It means the world. It means sustaining position. It means contending for good finishes. And we've noted that any when, when you are in a situation where you are consummately contending for wins it's the curse of the standard as you call it but any kind of small deviation from what you used to do very well actually makes a gigantic impact because that's how hard it is at the front of a NASCAR Cup Series field and Denny Hamlin's going the other way he's become even better so it will be curious to see how he carries this, but right now this 11 team has done a lot well outside of, you know, when, but this is one of the things that has helped keep them in contention at, you know, well, maybe, maybe Coda wasn't one, but for 13 races, certainly events that it looked like Denny Hamlin had a shot at winning. Uh, was 
was based on his uh, his restart retention. Yeah, and when you, I mean when you get to the top, it's hard to keep improving. So that is uh, that, that is interesting to hear when you can hone those skills because it will pay off eventually. Uh, we looked at the good, the improved. David, we have to look at the other side of the coin, of course. Not, I mean, bad's a, a strong word, but who, you know who's not doing so well in terms of, especially when it comes to impacting their results this year. I mean, who has been affected by poor restarts? Who are you looking at? Yeah, so there are, I mean, there are a few poor restarters in the series, but there's one, just considering he's in legitimate contention for a playoff spot, it is wild how poor Chris Busher has been on restarts oh. this season. He's, I mean, he, and he's, and he's been getting a lot of them. 33% yeah. retention all in, and a loss, a series worse loss of 37 spots from choose rule restarts, and 77 positions lost across all restarts. And this does impact his peer splits. He's above a one peer in races without a late race restart, uh, just over 0.400 in races with a late restart. And if you consider that point padding, getting into the playoffs without winning a race, it hinges on consistency. And Busher is a driver who, until he wins, is attempting to do this. And it's clear that he isn't totally consistent. Uh, we'll see if it ends up biting him. But if you are going to take, and I think this is just the hardest possible path in the playoffs, uh, but if you're going to take this path, there cannot be holes like this in your repertoire. So if it's a heavy slew of races down the stretch before the playoffs that have a lot of caution, setting up a lot of restarts or a lot of late race restarts, he might be in for a world of hurt. This might uh, knock him off uh, what's, at least right now, a, a really good trajectory. And you brought up exactly what I was thinking. You know, for listeners out there watching on Sunday, to you know, to think about the end of a race. If there is a restart, you know, a little bell goes off in your head. Oh, my God, like watch Chris Busher because there's a 66% chance, apparently, if he's running, you know, toward the front, that he's not going to retain his spot right now. Uh, so to see that play out. And then if he does, then you can consider yourself a little and be like, hey, Chris Busher just did that. That's pretty cool. So it just, it gives you something to focus on in, in these races. So that's what I like about what well, we hope we can educate you about it on this podcast. Uh, David, there, there's others. You talked about the good, bad, the ugly, what have you. I, I just think of some of the exciting drivers, maybe not the ones that are always up front, but if they were to get a chance, uh, guys like Tyler Reddick, you know, what, what, how do you just, I, I like Tyler Reddick's jib, if you will, the cut of his jib on the track, you know, running high, Mr. Excitement going for it, uh, kind of knocking on the door sometimes. How's he do when it comes to restarts? Kind of tough sledding. He is right at 50%. So if you're a glass half full guy, then I guess okay. But the preferred groove retention is, uh, inarguably low, 63% with, uh, a net zero gain, which isn't the worst, but also you want to be able to pick up spots when you're restarting from the groove you want to restart from. Uh, the non-preferred groove, 38% retention, a net loss of 21 spots on 21 non-preferred groove attempts. And the choose rule, does it suit him? It's, it's kind of unclear because he's, he's in this morass with uh, a number of drivers, uh, Austin Dillon is there, Ryan Newman, Ricky Stenhouse, Cole Custer. We've seen some of these drivers perform very well on restarts, but he is at 47% with a 20 position loss from restarts where he chose the spot. Um, so for him, this is 
an area of potential improvement. And if you couple this with the really efficient passing that he's brought on now, seemingly like at every track, the pole at Coda was certainly an eye opener for me that he, he might have some chops that he hasn't fully displayed yet, but he's, he's now, I don't, he's not contending for wins just yet, but he's contending for top tens at every conceivable track type. And this spot right here, if he cleans this up, he's those top tens are going to be becoming top fives. And from there, that's when you can start turning towards uh, aiming for wins. Nice. I'll give you one more only because my jury, Christopher Bell, my jury's still kind of out on him uh, in terms of, I, I know he can win, but if he's sitting there, say in eighth toward the end of these races, is he trying to vault himself into the top five or is he going, which direction is, is Christopher Bell going? Because I'm, I'm trying to figure him out still. Okay, so he was one uh, along with Chris Busher, who I was going to talk about uh, having poor restart numbers, but the saving grace here is he's already won a playoff race, so this isn't an issue yet. Like it, it's not going to keep him from the playoffs just yet. But if you were looking at his peer with uh in re- in races with at least one late race restart it is a 0.373 the split for races without is 0.793 mm. and the retention uh very very close to Tyler Reddick 52% retention all in a little bit better than a coin flip if you're going to be elite, you need to be about mm, 25% better than a coin flip wow. uh, to, to, to do that. And again, I mean, I mean, like Reddick, a sophomore driver, understanding how drivers react and attack and play defense on restarts takes some time to understand. And this is, you know, it, it's no shock that the, the three names at the top, Keselowski, Blaney, Larson, uh, are experienced. And have been running at the front of the field for a while. They, they have had a lot of experience doing that in cars of varying speeds. Larson was with Ganassi before he was with Hendrick and Keselowski and Blaney have experienced some up and down speed with Penske. So they've kind of seen a little bit of everything and have used that knowledge to their advantage. Drivers like Reddick and Bell are still accruing that knowledge and they need to understand how do they use it to their advantage so that they are able to execute on these short runs. All right, good stuff. That was a deep dive into restart. So uh, impress all your friends, everybody, when you're watching the race this weekend. And hope for more restarts. I know some drivers clearly do not want them, but uh, the more opportunities we have to uh, see this play out in front of us, I think that's cool. So uh, good stuff, David, on the restarts. Let's move on. It is the Coca-Cola 600 this weekend, one of NASCAR's crown jewels. And David, four stages. Can't forget, this race has four stages because it's 400 laps, 600 miles, and more points on the line than any other race. So is this the most important race of the regular season? Uh, maybe we can be choosy with our word there, but is it the most important race of the season? I, I mean, again, that word important. Factually, yes. I mean, the most valuable. I'll, I'll say valuable. It is obviously the most valuable race of the year. No way around that. Uh, the opportunity for points, that needs to be taken advantage of, especially if you're one of these bubble guys. You know, I just think of like an Austin Dillon, a Tyler Reddick. I mean, every decision has to be made with these stage points in mind because getting two, three stage points four times, I mean, stuff like that is going to add up at the right, at the end of the, at the end of the year if you don't have a win. 
So if most valuable, most important, what say you, David? Most vital. Okay. Oh, really? You know, it, it, it could be that. It doesn't have to be that. So you're, you're hitting on the right lines here. It is going to be selective based on, on the team of, of how, how they view the Coca-Cola 600. A top team that does well and accumulates points will have a higher single race point total than usual compared to other races. But that could be said for other top teams that have similar stage results and uh, race results. Where this race could go really, really bad is if some of these teams without wins, let's say they blow an engine early or they just have bad races outright in which they don't score stage points at all and they simply get a mediocre result, that would represent a blow uh, from a points perspective. Um, this race offers more opportunity for points, but the impact, I think, will be the size of the separation between the teams that scored points and a team, if this happens, just completely failed altogether. Um, so it might not be the most important race because there are a lot of ways that we can view that. But I would argue that of all the regular season races, this is the worst race to have your worst race. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's a fair way to look at it. Uh, the inverse of scoring points is, uh, you know, how many points you can lose or the potential that is no longer there. So I get what you're saying. I like that. Uh, in order to score those points, David, uh, we may see strategic gambles. I think we saw that last year. I mean, Alex Bowman got some, uh, I mean, used speed as well, but there were some good pick calls to get some uh, stage wins and stage points. So in terms of strategic gambles, how does tire wear affect strategy and potentially impact these results? Because again, there are many decisions to be made with the four stages out there. Yeah. Let's talk about that sequence with, with Bowman and, and Greg Ives. So Greg Ives took two tires only for Alex Bowman last year. Uh, it jumped Bowman from 13th to 1st. And because the tire wear was minimal, and this is important because I think we're going to see this this weekend, it was one second of degradation in most cases. But Bowman got that lead, and credit to him, he aero-blocked his way to two-stage <laughs> victories. They finished 19th in the race, but we remember that call because mm-hmm. they tallied the fourth most points. So forget the finish. They came away from the Coke 600 getting exactly what they wanted to get out of it. So the fact that there is another opportunity for stage points, another playoff point, that is huge. And it might be for the lead. It might not. But the machinations uh, to uh, to make that can help pad points that carry you to the playoffs. And in that sense... This game, the stage point game, is going to dictate a lot of calls on Sunday. And because the tire wear is minimal, it's the same tire uh, compound and combination for last year's race, clean air can turn a point grabber, like Bowman was, into a legitimate race win contender. That is entirely possible. Um, the results of this race... Might not properly reflect performance because of this. It will be a straightforward race, but this element, the tire wear, is going to shape a lot of what we see on Sunday. 
interesting. And it's just, you know, being in different positions, you know, this year with, with Bowman already having a win or two wins. And I talked to Greg Ives in Austin, um, you know, last week at Circuit of the Americas and just saying how their strategy right now, their strategy is stage wins. They, they, his strategy will be to focus around those. And, and that, that's really the point going forward, right? So maybe that was different from last year in terms of going for two tires or, or making the call to get, you know, it's just different situations breed different, um, potential strategies. So it just makes you wonder what the 48 team or any other team in their particular situation will be doing this weekend and how it changes. I found that interesting, David. Well, this, looking back on, on, you know, former 600 races, it's been, if you have the speed, we've seen domination lately, right, David? Martin Truex Jr., uh, a few years ago, uh, you know, a snoozer, right? I mean, what did he lead, like 490-something miles or something like that? Kyle Busch has done it before. They've had the speed. Speed has won out. So let's look at this year. 550 tracks. We've talked about him for weeks now. Kyle Larson has the fastest 550-horsepower car. We saw him dominate Atlanta. Didn't win. Didn't win. But is his speed enough to just carry it on and get the checkered flag? It should be. Uh, I mean, he he should win two stages in this one. Easy. Not a problem. Hmm. He's going to be the heavy betting favorite. And, uh, I, yeah, he's got a legit shot to win. Doesn't matter where he qualifies. But the notion of a race where tire wear is small, minimal, uh, that is going to rein him in. A bit. At the very least, it will keep him honest because there are going to be stage breaks in which these two tire gambles, if we can call them that, take place. There might be more cautions that give crew chiefs opportunities to do this. And in that sense, it's going to be difficult to pass and clean air is going to matter a lot. We've seen this at every 550 mile and a half race. So it's not. It might be a case where he dominates. That that might entirely be what we see uh, Sunday night, but it's not over if he's seconds ahead because this kind of move can completely flip the script. And I'll, I'll throw this in for folks to think about. It might matter. It might not. Kyle Larson has never won a 500-mile race. Should we expect him to win a 600 mile race? <laughs> Does that actually matter? I don't know, but the trend becomes more interesting if it continues. So factor that in, factor in the tires are the great equalizer and yeah, it, it might be a dominant performance. That does not mean that he is leaving Charlotte with a race one. Philosophical question, I guess that has maybe doesn't have an answer. So I apologize in advance, but a team with a bunch of speed. Who has, I guess, who has more to lose? A team who has a bunch of speed and, and says, let's just keep the speed, take four tires every time versus the car that's not going to beat the fast one. So let's take two. Or does that team with all the speed say, we're so fast, let's just take two because we can afford to because we're so damn fast. <laughs> Any other way, you know, you see what I'm getting at? Like, what is the better call or who's under more pressure to lose if you are a slower team going for a strategy call or the, the team with all the speed trying to keep that advantage? The popular answer, as if, as in you, if you ask crew chiefs this, what would they do? If they had this kind of lights out speed, they would do everything in their power to not screw it up. Mm. So it would be a heavy dose of four tire calls. And look, a, l- a lot of times that speed is going to win. That is the most correlative metric 
in NASCAR and it's going to lead to stage points. If you get the car right, that's going to mask a lot of the deficiencies you have and make everything okay. So there isn't from the lead, there isn't a point to gamble. Now, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to give up the lead late in the race like we saw last season. We saw not only Alan Gustafson, but James Small as well, gave up the lead to pit four tires in a race where tires didn't really matter all that much. I don't want to do that, especially this weekend. But if you're able to have that speed and maintain the lead, then by all means, keep it and don't do anything to upset the apple cart. All right. Well, with all that said, David, let's make our picks to win the Coca-Cola 600. We've talked a lot of Kyle Larson, so I'm wondering who are you going to pick? Who is your pick to win? Oh, Chase Elliott, of course. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm taking a similar strategy. I'll let you go first, though. Uh, tell us why Chase Elliott. He is the top surplus passer on 550 horsepower tracks. As I just noted, this this is it's going to be tough to pass just with the package, the dynamics of a 1.5-mile track, the air, the ease of aero blocking. He's able to work through a lot of that. Uh, his average best lap rank is in the top five as well. So he'll have a fast enough car. With clean air, he'll he'll be tough to, to beat. But I'm actually betting that this will be a tire wear race and Alan Gustafson for as much grief as I gave him for that call last year to pit before the end of the Coca-Cola 600, uh, it cost them the race. I think he can make it right this time around uh, among all crew chiefs this season, his weighted position retention rate during green flag pit cycles on non-drafting tracks mm-hmm. ranks first. And the decision making under yellow has been somewhat on par with that. So for Alan Gustafson, I think redemption is in the cards and Chase Elliott gets a Coke 600 win that eluded him last year. Nice. I also picked a Hendrick Carr and not Kyle Larson, despite us telling you how good he is. I'm going Willie B. William Byron. Larson, of course, a good pick, but well, that's easy pick. Byron has plenty of speed, just like Kyle Larson does at these 550 tracks. We know he's been running toward the front. Uh, it was only the rain that stopped his top 10 streak last week at Circuit of the Americas. He finished 11th. Uh, so stats do make this something of a long shot, but I like the idea. David, I just, we, we started this off talking about Jeff Gordon, 24 car, Ray Evernham starting this, you know, hello world sort of legacy. I like the idea of this driver crew chief combo saying, what's up world on one of the biggest nights of the year. So I'm just going with William Byron. I, I don't think it's crazy to pick a Hendrick car. So I'm just picking the 24 again. I don't think it's crazy at all. As a matter of fact, I will predict that he wins the poll because we are qualifying this yes, week. And qualifying. He, he has a knack for that. Uh, I'm yeah, I, that's, it feels like a good, but he's going to be at the front at some point in this race, fair to say. Good stuff. All right, now we go to our contrarian performers. David, I'll tee you up here. Who is a, someone to look at possibly maybe to just outperform themselves or even maybe contend for a win? What do you think? I'm pot committed on pit strategy this week, and I will take the driver whose crew chief ranks second to Alan Gustafson in the metric I, uh, I mentioned earlier. That is Ross Chastain with wow. crew chief Phil Surgeon. 
uh, Phil Surgeon just getting it done in terms of green flag pit cycles. The strategy has been on point as much as the Chevrolet camp has, uh, has done all season. Uh, Chastain in his own right tied for second in surplus passing value this season on 550 tracks. All right. Uh, and I'm going way out there, David, only because we, We've seen strange stuff in the Coca-Cola 600. We've seen first-time winners. We've seen strategy calls. We've seen just the unexpected. Daniel Suarez, why not? We've seen crazy. We've seen weird. We've seen crazy pick, not crazy pick calls, but just strategic pick calls. And we know if you listen to this podcast, Travis Mack is someone we always bring up to do something slightly different a long fuel run, a tire call. This is the type of race where these things seem to play out because you do have that extra hundred miles. David, I'm just saying Daniel Suarez, maybe for, maybe for a surprise victory. Why not? Keep Charlotte weird. And Travis Mack is the guy exactly. to do it. Great call. Yes. All right. Why not? 99. Well, maybe something will happen. All right. Good episode, David. We dove deep into a lot of things. Don't forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, TuneIn, and YouTube. We're available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff helps spread the word of this podcast. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated, the stuff you guys write on there. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Reach out on Twitter at PosRegPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What do you got this week? Between NBC Sports and Forbes, I will have four new articles between now and Memorial Day. So nice. The best option for our listeners, I'll say, is to follow me on Twitter at DavidSmithMA, uh, cause you will see whenever I tweet a link to one of these articles, or just shoot me a note at motorsportsanalytics at gmail.com to sign up for email delivery of all my analysis. Uh, you'll have that right in your inbox. Good stuff there. And same with me. Follow me on Twitter at Alan Kavana because, uh, you know, got myself into a bunch of different things. So after you listen to this podcast, hopefully on Thursday morning, check out my Twitter account in Speed Sport. You will see our latest quick hits edition video that I do for them because it is a huge weekend of racing beyond NASCAR. Obviously the Indy 500 I preview on there. The Little 500, if you haven't heard of that, make sure you check out what that is on the video. Uh, we, we just previewed the upcoming weekend of what'll just be an awesome weekend of racing. So check that out. Check out NASCAR.com before you set your lineup on Sunday, the Fantasy Live game. Myself and Amy Long will be back in studio bringing you the best picks and strategies for your fantasy team and, yeah, everything else that goes along with the weekend. I'll be at the track. David, I hope to see you there, of course. So I'll be maybe tweeting some updates, some pictures from the garage now that we are allowed to go back in. Uh, it's very cool to be back and, and feel, you know, entrenched in the sport once again. So uh, I look forward to seeing you there, David. So another good episode, Positive Regression, episode 104. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. We will see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. 
Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.